This is Karen Eber, author of The Perfect Story, how to tell stories that inform, influence, and inspire, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where every Friday I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book. This show has been named one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, and has millions of downloads and listeners in over 185 countries. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, connect and message me on LinkedIn, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And to make sure you never miss an episode, you have a few options. The best way is to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, or go to marketingbookpodcast.com and sign up for email notifications. Or if you're on LinkedIn, find the Marketing Book Podcast page and click the subscribe button and maybe meet some of your fellow listeners. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Karen Eber to talk about her book, The Perfect Story, How to Tell Stories That Inform, Influence, and Inspire, published by HarperCollins. Karen Eber is a best-selling author, international consultant, and keynote speaker. Her TED Talk, How Your Brain Responds to Stories and Why They're Crucial for Leaders, continues to be a source of inspiration for millions. Karen was previously a head of culture, chief learning officer, and head of leadership development at General Electric and Deloitte. As the CEO and chief storyteller of Eber Leadership Group, Karen helps companies build leaders, teams, and culture one story at a time. Working with Fortune 500 companies like General Electric, Microsoft, Kraft Heinz, Facebook, and the big four consulting companies. She guest lectures at universities, including the London School of Business, Stanford, and MIT, and is a frequent contributor to publications like Fast Company, Business Insider, TED, Forbes, Inc., and Entrepreneur. And interesting fact. She has one brown eye and one green eye. This is a very interesting situation. Karen, congratulations on the perfect story and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and talking with you today. Oh, well, so there are other interesting facts about you that I feel compelled to mention. One is that you play the flute and there's a famous broadcaster who also plays the flute. Do you know who that is? I don't. It's Ron Burgundy. You play jazz flute? <laughs> I dabble. And you grew up in Miami and are a graduate of Florida State University, home of the Fighting Seminoles. I recently interviewed one of your fellow uh, Florida State alums, Scott Edinger, author of oh, The nice. Growth Leader. Yeah. So, uh, Florida State, represent. Yeah. yeah. So, I was in the Marching Chiefs. That might have been me playing. Oh, wow. Oh, now i got to pay you. No, I'm... That's right. uh, <laughs> uh, how about some compliments on your book? Take, I'll take it. So, you were in the marching band. Did you play flute or piccolo? Piccolo. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I am, I like to say, the Rudy Rudiger of piccolo playing, which Rudy Rudiger was a, a football player for Notre Dame many years ago that was all heart and little talent. And so that is probably where I come in. I'm a, a incredibly average piccolo player. <laughs> well, good enough, evidently. Yeah. Um, and also, it's my understanding the piccolo is quite difficult to play and requires constant practice. It actually takes more air to play the piccolo than it does the tuba because the majority of it spills out over the instrument. And so you have to really focus it and it's about as thin as a pencil. So you're like forcing all this air through this little thing, whereas in the tuba, all the air goes in it. So when you first learn, you have to be really careful not to get head rushes. And when you're marching, you have to learn how to march and blow the air and control it and not get lightheaded. Oh, wow. Well, now I have even more respect when I uh, watch the halftime shows of the of the uh, marching bands. So That's right. Give it up for the piccolos. For yeah. The <laughs> represent. All right. So several books have been on this podcast over the years about storytelling, and I am going to include links to all those interviews at this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com for those listeners who want to uh, explore uh, and, and listen to those um, interviews and, and, and explore those books. And at the very end of your book, I should add, you have several very, very helpful storytelling checklists that are obviously very tied into uh, pretty much every chapter of your book. So it's almost worth the price of the book alone. 
I'm an instructional designer by trade. So I studied in graduate school on how do you bring psychology to work and organize information and make it easy for people to do their best work. And so when I was putting this together, it was really important to me not just to give people the the background of, of what makes a story compelling in the brain, but what to do with it. And who wants to page through like 90 pages to try to find the one thing you need? <laughs> so I put checklists at the end to make it easy so that once you read it, you can go back to find the specific things that are going to be most helpful. And this is your first book? It is. I, I couldn't believe it. It's almost as the, the book was extremely well done, very well edited. You're a great writer. And it's almost like this might have been your fifth book or your 10th book. And I read a lot of these books and I just, it was a pleasure to read. I really uh, appreciate how you did it. And I want to quote from a couple sections in the introduction and then uh, talk about your book. So on page four, you write, we embrace stories as children before bedtime or around campfires. We entertain friends with them. We even tell them while waiting for meetings to begin. Whether you're climbing the corporate ladder, leading a team, giving a toast, pitching a venture capitalist, posting on social media, or selling a product or service, storytelling is a skill you can and should learn. They help you build trust with your audience, create new thinking, become memorable, and influence decision-making. Even with the increase of AI, having the ability to create connection and relate experiences through stories is key. This is the skill that can gain you career growth and success. And then jumping over to page nine, you write, this book teaches where to find stories, how to tell stories, and how to perfect your stories so that you can build ideas, influence decisions, and inspire action. It won't teach you how to write a screenplay or your own novel, but it will take you through a methodology and an approach that works whether you're presenting in a meeting, talking to a customer, preparing for a job interview, selling a product, posting on social media, or giving a toast. The approach shared in this book isn't limited to a specific audience or setting. It teaches you how to tell the perfect story in business or life. So, Karen, in your intro, I mentioned that you have one brown eye and one green eye, and you write that your eyes give you a special power. What is that? It's storytelling. So, I was born with blue eyes like most young babies, and uh, around four months, I started to turn different colors. And it's always been my favorite thing about myself. Like I have a built-in answer to that question. Tell me something interesting about yourself. But as much as I loved it, I would be able to recognize the moment when people would notice it because we'd be in conversation, their words would slow, and I could see their eyes moving back and forth between mine. It's almost like their brain was trying to decide, do I look at the brown one or the green one or the brown one or the green one? And I would brace myself because I knew what was coming because it was the same thing every time. It was, did you know you had two different colored eyes? To which I like never quite know how to answer. Like, do you really think I didn't know? <laughs> and so playfully, my response would be, no, you're kidding. Get and out. <laughs> exactly. But really, my response didn't matter because there would be a script they would go on, which was typically, I have a dog that has two different color eyes, or I know a dog that has two different color eyes, <laughs> to which I'm always like, thank you. Like, what, what, <laughs> what do I do with that? And then um, David Bowie, David Bowie had two different color eyes, to which I'm always uh, sorry to tell people he did not. He was in an accident and had a dilated pupil. So no, he didn't. And the questions would continue because people are trying to make sense of this. And I would become more and more uncomfortable. Um, and this thing that I loved about myself became this burden. And I decided the next time it happened that I was going to try to change that moment. And so when the person said, how did that happen? After asking me, you know, do your parents have different color eyes? Do you see different colors out of each eye? That's my favorite. Because um, I always want to say, like, do you see different colors out of your eyes? Um and they would ask, do your eyes give you special powers? And then it would be, how did that happen? And I told them that I was born with brown eyes. That I was in my room coloring one night. And you know how we all have that big box of crayons that you mm -hmm. would throw stuff into? Like the broken ones and the peeled ones and the perfect ones. For me, that was a cigar box. And I was in my room coloring and I was getting hungry. Dinner wasn't going to be for a few more hours. 
I reached in the box and I pulled out a green crayon. It didn't really smell like anything, but I took a little bite and it had a really interesting texture. So I ate it and I liked it. So I ate another and another until all the green crayons in the box were gone. Next day I woke up and my left eye was green. <laughs> and I would be quiet and people would not know what to make of me. Like their brain is telling them there's no way her eye changed colors because her because she ate crayons. Um, but they're, they're also looking at me like, she said it so convincingly. I'm not really sure what to make of it. You were that good. <laughs> I Yeah, you know, we, we major in sarcasm sometimes. <laughs> and so I would let them off the hook and tell them that, no, my eyes did not change colors because I ate crayons. But this amazing shift happened because it went from this awkward moment where I felt like a sideshow at the circus because they're calling friends over like, hey, you got to check out her eyes and, you know, asking me these questions that they're clearly not listening to. And it went to this moment of connection because they laughed. They realized they did ask me, do you see different colors out of each eye? And we start having a different type of conversation and we have this connection, even in what could be sometimes really artificial situations. And I've had people tell me, you know, 20 years later, they see crayons and they think of me and they remember this. It took what was this really awkward draining thing and allowed for me to take that power back. And so I, um, yes, I am now known for crayons, but it, it helped me recognize that I do have this superpower of storytelling. So Karen Eber, have you ever actually eaten a crayon? No, I have not. Okay. I have not actually eaten a crayon. I probably should, but I'm I'm pretty good not trying one. Yeah, no, I, I agree, I agree. But you know, there are many listeners to this podcast who are veterans of the United States Marine Corps. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. And I can't resist. Eating crayons, as as you know, based on the material I sent you, is very important to Marines. Uh, so I feel to ask that question. Just, you know, really on their behalf. What have we got here? A fucking comedian. And a lot of people make fun of Marines for eating crayons. But I just want to say to all of you, like you, who haven't, don't knock it until you've tried it. Because those things are delicious. Those Marines, they know what they're doing. And I should also add, there's a picture of a crayon on the cover of your book. And some of my Marine Corps listeners asked if, in fact, this was a, a recipe book. And <laughs> it is not. So... So just a couple of questions uh, from the beginning of the book. You write that you are trying to save the world from boring meetings, one story at a time. And for that, uh, I thank you and you will go to heaven. So how have, besides that, how have you used storytelling as a tool in your career? Well, if we started the boring meetings, we have all sat through these meetings where people are going line by line through Excel or talking at you or just rambling, trying to be in search of whatever message they might have. And when you start to calculate the cost of that, it's it's insane. So I recognized pretty early on, there's a different way to do this. But throughout my career, I've tried to use it in roles when I'm on both sides of the desk. So I, I say that because I have had this career, as you mentioned, where I was a head of culture for a business in General Electric that was 90,000 employees in 150 countries. And a lot of the work I was trying to do was connect with our leaders um, that day-to-day -day leader has the greatest influence over the culture and the people. Um, and I found that, you know, the only way you can shape culture is one conversation at a time when people can stop and think like, what does this mean for me? And what do I want to do different? And there was no way for me to reach 90,000 employees in one-on-one -on -one conversations. But I found that when I use stories, people would see themselves in the story they would think about what it meant to them. They would, even if they had never had the experience, would start to think about what they might do. And it was a way for me to start to scale these discussions about what great leaders look like and what we really valued from them and our teams and, and how we could start to make shifts. Um, I've used it throughout my career when I was trying to persuade people to make investments in technology or in programs where one person owned the budget and had the ability to say yes, and 99 other people People could say no and sabotage it. And so I found stories slowed their no and it, it helped them even come on my side and be persuaders. I've used it to give toasts, you know, eulogies and job interviews. Um, 
in awkward dinner conversations. We all have these networking events, these moments where you're thrown in with strangers. And then if you're an introvert like me, your mind goes blank and you're like, what the heck are we going to talk about? And this feels so awkward, but a story can break through that and create these connections. That's great. Stories slow their no. All you salespeople, did you hear that? <laughs> I love it. Really it's so do. true. Now, you, you talked about leaders. Why is it that leaders are allergic to storytelling? A few different reasons. You know, sometimes we see other people around us communicate in a style and think we have to emulate that style. So if there's a meeting update and people are putting up slides and they are 10-point font and row after row of stuff, the thought of getting up without a slide or maybe putting up a picture and starting in a different spot feels really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It feels like I'm going to stand out in a way that is different. And yes, that's the point. The point is to model a different way of communicating, but it can feel like you have to be courageous to do that. I think also leaders struggle with what story they're going to tell. How can they find the story? Um, Most often, we're just super busy and unfortunately don't always budget or have the time to do the preparation needed. And so we will tinker with the slides, getting them perfect, opening up our, our many different decks and piecing together uh, a new set of slides, almost like a quilt, um, based on existing things, instead of stopping and thinking about the audience and what we want. And so we've got these beautiful slides, but we don't spend even five minutes thinking about what are we going to say about them? All we've done is pull together slides. And so now you're backed up against this deadline and that's awkward. And I think the other piece is we struggle with... um, you know, as a leader, sometimes we think, well, that could be vulnerable, or I don't I don't want to share a story about myself or something personal. And so there's just all of these myths about what great communication looks like and what the process is and where you should be spending your time. And we fall into patterns and it just feels a whole lot easier not to do it. Yeah. And we're going to talk about some of those things. You write that many people talk themselves out of telling a story as though they're missing a, a storyteller gene. Mm-hmm. Like like somebody who might think, oh, I'm just, I don't do math. I'm not good at math. Or it's like, I'm, I'm just not a storyteller. What do you have to say to those listeners who may in fact have that mindset? You just don't, you haven't been taught there's a process and a methodology to do it. Yeah, you don't know how to do it today, but that doesn't mean that you can't learn it. It's not that people are born with a gene and they get up and they do it. You're seeing the results of a lot of practice and iteration and improving their task, improving their abilities and doing it at the point you see it. You know, so often the things we think we can't do are because we don't understand what the intentional steps behind it are. And it can be learned, and we can all tell great stories. Yes, and it reminds me of writing. A lot of people think, oh, I'm just not a writer. (laughs) Just get started. Every writer who's really good just started somewhere, and then they learned uh, how to do it. So I hope that's that's encouraging, folks. So there there are two sections of the book that really, really excited me, as, as I knew they would, and one of them has to do with science. And you write that a couple of things. Storytelling is an art that is grounded in science. And brain chemistry changes when we experience stories, and the brain responds more dynamically to storytelling than to information. Another great line is, storytelling is a musical conductor of neurochemicals. And your TED Talk was about what happens to your brain when you tell stories. And it it all, you know, because my brain works in very strange, troubling ways, it reminds me of the 1980s Partnership for a Drug-Free America TV commercial that shows a guy in his kitchen with an egg and a frying pan. And uh, here's the audio from that. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? (laughs) So Karen Eber, tell us about our brains on stories and the five factory settings of our brains. Yeah, there's different layers to it. So some of the things you were talking about, like what's in my TED Talk and and some of the things that are happening in the brain, that is explaining why our brains do respond more dynamically to stories than to um, information, which is interesting and and fascinating. Yeah. But 
when you're going to tell a story, there's nothing there. Like, what do you do with all of that? So I recognize that there's a lot of people that talk about the science of storytelling, but not, um, there's still this opportunity that to get into what do you do with the science and how do you factor that into your stories to make sure the brain is paying attention that it is dynamically responding and that's what I was trying to do in this book of of not just share some science but share new science and share it in a very relatable way if you're afraid of um, neuroscience and it sounds very test tube and lab coat like no this is not that at all this is truly explaining it in a relatable way um because I feel like if you can understand what's happening and what to do with it, you can lean into it more in your stories. And I think of all of these that I'm going to talk through in a moment as this is all ingredients and you can make so many different types of cuisines from it. Right. I guess uh, I think I agree. Somebody might read that and think, oh, gosh, that's, that's, that's overwhelming. That's uh, intimidating. It For me, and I hope the other readers, uh, they'll see it and say, oh, wow, I didn't realize how powerful it is. But you don't have to worry about how it all happens, but it does happen. Yeah. So I came up with these five factory settings of the brain because there are certain ways that your brain is going to respond to information um, and stories. So whether you are receiving communications or listening to a story, there are certain things that are going to happen. Just like your phone comes with factory settings, our brain has these natural things that are going to happen. And so these five are then considerations and um, the book works through what do you actually do with them. So the first one, I want you to think about those days where you finish work and you are exhausted. Um, you're, you're almost feeling numb and you wrap up your, your chores, you settle on the couch, you reach for the remote, put on your favorite show to stream or maybe a movie that you've seen. And these are like the familiar, comfortable things that you could recite word for word because you've seen it so many times right yeah, like watching the the office or 30 rock sure, or exactly <laughs> exactly whatever that is for you i've yeah. i've heard people say um the tv show gilmore girls in the us i've heard people mention movies like whatever that is for you we all have that moment where we're like oh let's just put this on and it's cuz our brain says i don't want to think like mm-hmm. i'm done we are done with thinking and that's because your brain is lazy This is our first factory setting. Your brain is here to keep you alive, right? Number one goal, keep you alive and functioning. And by the way, you you made it through yesterday. So do the exact same things that you did yesterday because it worked, right? That's what the brain wants you to do because it's this broker of calories. It is always trying to regulate calories to keep your body running and to be able to anticipate what's happening around you and how you move through the world. So some of those calories, one bucket of them are non-negotiables. How you're breathing, how all your bodily systems and, and things are functioning, like those are dedicated. But then there is this bonus fund where it's discretionary, where um, calories can be spent towards paying attention, towards focusing, being immersed, engaging, getting in a state of flow. And so if you think about those meetings that are incredibly boring and you find yourself drifting off, planning your weekend, thinking about stuff you're going to go stop at the store and buy, it's because of this. Our brains are not meant to be fully immersed all day, every day. They are meant to drift in and out. And what makes a brain pay attention is when it chooses to spend calories on something. When it says, you know what, this is worth the discretionary calories. Let's throw some at this. This is really interesting. (laughs) And the way you start to think about that in storytelling is when there's a story that's building tension, you start to feel it and you lean in and you're like, what's going to happen? So I was on a flight this week and I put on the movie Everest. Uh, It's a 2015 movie talking about the accounts from the 1996 disaster on Everest when people passed away caught in a storm. And I've seen this movie before and I knew the story. I knew what happened. I read books about it. And yet... I felt myself still feeling that tension of like, oh my gosh, how is this going to happen? And is this the scene where this person dies? And oh my goodness, like I knew the the plot points of the story, yet there was still, the way it was unfolding was 
building the tension and make me lean in. It was making my brain say, spend calories. Mm. So we have this choice when we're communicating, when we're telling stories of how are we going to kick the brain out of lazy mode and build tension? How are we going to put in unexpected events, unexpected details that's going to make the brain say, wait, what? Hit the proverbial speed bump and pay attention. So that's like eating green crayons. Absolutely. 100%. I see what you so, did there. That's right. That's right. You're on to me. Um, so that's the first factory setting that your brain is lazy. And it pairs with the second, which is that it is always making assumptions. So it is going to use the calories to make predictions and assumptions. So this isn't just scanning the environment for threats. This is making a prediction about how you need to set your foot when you're going downstairs. The reason the brain wants to make predictions is that reactions cost more calories. So when we're in a state of stress and uncertainty, everything becomes more inefficient because it's costing more calories and we're not using them as effectively. But when we can make predictions, we can understand what things are, and conserve calories. So if I put up an ink blot without saying anything, your brain is already trying to figure out what it is because it hates for things to be incomplete. It doesn't want to react. It wants to be on the front. So this is why we guess the endings of movies. We try to figure out where a book is going. We listen to a speaker and we're trying to anticipate what's going to happen. The brain doesn't want things to be incomplete. And what this means in stories is you're either leaning into these assumptions or you're challenging them. You know, I, I challenged your assumption of what a green crayon was, right? You immediately went to Marines and I had something different. Um, there'll be other people that, that may, it may work for them. But when we're telling stories, we have to be thinking about, are we trying to help the audience lean into those assumptions that they have or really challenge them? Right. And that brings to mind stand-up comedy where in a very short amount of time, uh, the, the, the punchline throws people off. 100%. Exactly. It's that zing, like, oh, I didn't expect that. Oh, man. And we remember that because of it, because it's this little burst. You almost feel it go through your body when it happens. So th those two are paired, and it pairs nicely with the third one, too, which is that that we are um, this library of files. So, so when you take a photo on your phone and you swipe up on it, Stored on the bottom of that photo is the f-stop, the date, the location, the aperture, like everything you would need to automatically recreate that photo. You didn't do anything other than take the photo. It's automatically stamped there. Something similar happens with our senses. As we are taking in information and we're having experiences, they get stamped with emotions and they get stored in our long-term memory. So you smell a fragrance of a loved one and you immediately put yourself back in the day that you spent with them. Like mm -hmm. You can immediately feel it. This library of files is our long-term memory of, of things that we have. So when our brain is going to make these predictions and assumptions, it's going through, is this something we know? Is this related to something we know? Is this brand new? Do we need a whole new folder? And this library of files is the basis of our, um, you know, it, it informs our decision-making. It's our experiences. It's also why you and I can look at two pieces of data or look at a piece of data and, and have different interpretations of it because mm -hmm. we have different experiences. What the library of files means in storytelling is you can harness this to your advantage by connecting to what people know and immediately getting a visual or um, even engaging a sense. So, I was doing a storytelling workshop this week and, and one of the students got up and he described this story about um, a home being built and he talked about the scent of the lumber being cut. And I stopped and I asked the room, like, who just smelled that lumber? And mm -hmm. every single person did, right? It immediately is placed in your brain. If I said to you, the incision was the size of a paperclip, you can now immediately see how big that is. Mm -hmm. And so connecting to the library of files in stories is this opportunity to take what people know and get that fully formed understanding in their head, let them almost see or smell or experience it in a way that they're not even consciously willing it, it just happens. So those first three work together really well. And the choices that you make of what you put in the story and the specific details and, and how you are really tapping into what the audience knows makes that more dynamic. The last two work together um, because it's about what the audience experiences. So you walk into a networking event, you don't know anybody, 
you start scanning the room and subconsciously your brain is like trying to figure out who to go talk to. And it does the, no, 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 no. It's almost looking for like who feels safe, who feels right to walk up to. Um, And it's because we seek in groups and out groups, which is the fourth factory setting. We naturally categorize this. In groups are those that we feel a sense of belonging to or aspiration. In sales, this is the, I'll have what she's having. It's the the things that we want to be, do, have, become. All of that um, creates this feeling that is familiar or, or similar. The out group is where we notice the differences. Charities use this, where um, uh, maybe the Red Cross is sharing the story after a natural disaster of someone that lost their home. They're struggling to get food, electricity, water, clothing. You're hearing the story sitting in your home next to food, in electricity, with indoor plumbing right next to you, and you recognize how different your circumstances are. And so you have this choice when you're telling a story of, are you telling a story where people feel this in-group feeling or where they notice a difference? So in a company, um, you know, the marketing division is all an in-group, but you are out-group from engineering. Mm-hmm. The the group that is facing an organizational change might tell an out-group story of why we can't stay where we are, why we're we're gonna have to face something different. So you get to create this experience for people by thinking about that. And the last factory setting is that at our most simplest level, we seek pleasure and avoid pain. We have this cocktail of neural chemicals that give us um, are released in moments of pleasure, like dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. These are released in moments of connection and bonding can't be fabricated, can't be welded. It is a true, genuine response of the brain. Um, this is why you watch Toy Story and you see Woody headed towards the incinerator and you just feel that lump forming in your throat. You're getting that like, oh my goodness, I I understand this. You know, I this is so familiar and sentimental to me. Um, but we also have the neurochemicals for cortisol and adrenaline, and these are released in moments of focus. So your body says something isn't quite right here. We need to pay attention, and so these are released in focus uh, to to hype up focus. But we experience these shifts when we're hearing a story, right? When you get goosebumps, when someone's telling this gripping story about maybe how they met a significant other, or um, you're watching a movie that you're feeling, you know, maybe James Bond is running across the rooftops and you're not moving, but you feel your pulse quicken because your brain is placing yourself in the story, imagining that, that you were a part of it. And so these neural chemicals we do undergo these shifts and you have this choice to make of, am I telling a feel-good story or an uncomfortable story or both? You know, I open my TED Talk with this story about someone who drops her phone down an elevator shaft and it's an uncomfortable story. It ends in a a good place, but you intentionally move through discomfort to go there. Mm -hmm. So these five become almost these levers of choices that you can make and what is that experience I'm trying to give the audience and how am I trying to quickly connect to what they understand, but also disrupt it and slow it and and be thoughtful of, am I helping them feel a part of something or notice differences or am I taking them through discomfort or, or something that feels good or both? And you now have many different ingredients that you can use in a story. And in that fifth section, you write, a great story is intentional about how it connects the audience to pleasure or discomfort. Can you talk about the importance of emotion? And I'm guessing, do a lot of people, are they reluctant to include emotion in their stories? People are afraid of it, especially in business settings. We think like, um, well, it's business. Well, we're not devoid of emotion. First, we make decisions through emotions. We love to think that we are making them rationally and that we are just these objective beings, but we make decisions through our emotions. So I talked earlier about how you're taking information through your senses, your experiences get stamped with emotions and stored in long-term memory. So when you are making a decision, your brain is going through your long-term memory of, is this a decision we've made? Is this related to something we've made? What do we know what this could be? Same exact thing is even happening with data. We are making our understanding and our decisions based on that. This reluctance to engage emotion 
only makes it harder to get to understanding. Um, there are so many different emotions. You know, we, we tend to think of happy, sad, um, you know, whatever, but who hasn't experienced frustration? Mm-hmm. Who hasn't experienced exhaustion? There's so many pieces to emotion that can connect someone listening to something in a way that they just immediately understand. Um, you know, I used emotion once playfully when I was on the other side of the desk in a corporate career. I had been voluntold, volun asked to do something that I did not want to do <laughs> at all. Right. And my response was, I would rather braid my eyelashes. There's emotion in that, you know? I not only did not have to do it, someone handed me an eye patch at the next next meeting as a joke. Ah. And so, um, you know, emotions do immediately create understanding and connection, but also are going to aid in decision-making. Mm, yes. Well, let's talk about something important. The following topic, listeners, is very important to marketers, salespeople, business owners, your friends, spouses. And that is one of several just priceless nuggets is in, well, the entirety of chapter five, the title of which is start with your audience, not the story. Start with your audience, not the story. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, have I got your attention now? Okay, so since you devoted an entire chapter to understanding how much more important your audience is versus the story you want to tell, I'd like you to uh, elaborate on some really important questions to ask yourself, which are included in that chapter, but also on page 78 for those playing the home game. Yeah, the reason the story starts with the audience is if you don't start there, the story may go over their head. It may not connect to any of those things we just talked about with the factory settings, right? You're not going to get any of that right. And a story done well makes it easy for the person to follow along, to think about what their experience has been or might be. And to do that, you have to get really clear on what you want the outcomes to be. But do a lot of people default to the stories they like? rather than what's helpful for their audience. Doesn't everyone have an uncle at their holiday table who does that? (laughs) So we do, right? We we love to tell stories that that are in our playlist, right? Our greatest hits. Because we enjoy them and there's something about it. But if you're just telling them at people, it might not be connecting. A great example. If a, a loved one that is not in your field at all asks you what you do for a living... You give a really watered-down version, like almost as if you were at an elementary school career day. You're explaining it that simply. I'm a submarine captain, yes. Yeah, you know, you're not going to get into the specifics. But if you're in a networking event, same industry, people that do your stuff and you meet someone, you're going to get into it. And that's because you're recognizing in the moment, oh, I can't tell Aunt Irene that this is, you know, I can't get into the details with her. I have to really simplify this so that she gets the basics of it. But at the networking event, no, I want to tell you about this super cool project I'm working on and we're going to geek out together. And that's what we're doing wrong in stories. If you're just coming out with whatever version of the story that you want, it's not necessarily going to land. Mm-hmm. When you start first with who is this audience, you know, what do I know about them? And what is it that I want them to think or feel? Mm-hmm. Right? A sentence. Yeah. Like, this is a five-minute activity. What is that internal shift that I want? And that could be confidence or trust in what you're saying, but maybe it's like a, a awareness or um, empathy. You know, what do you want that internal thing to be? But just asking that one question, however briefly, can make an enormous difference. Yeah. Because the we really do undergo shifts Maybe minor, maybe almost hard to detect with the eye, but being intentional about that as we start to go through the process will help you build your story. So first question is this, what do I want my audience to think or feel? What is that internal experience I want them to have? And then you want to go external of what do you want them to know or do as a result of your story? Mm -hmm. Both of these are just write one sentence out. And then what is your audience's mindset today? Mm. Mm-hmm. Are they coming with any biases, beliefs, understanding? Um, and then the last one is what might be an obstacle in getting your audience to what you want them to know, think, feel, or do? 
So this is meant to be truly a five-minute activity that lets you center on not just your audience, but what you want as a result of it. When we get asked to present in a meeting and we build that PowerPoint quilt and we don't think about what we're going to say and we're just talking at people, we've never once taken into account what we want the audience to do or think. And so now you're just talking at people and this is what's killing us in meetings. <laughs> if you started instead with, what do I want my audience to know, think, feel, or do? What is that mindset that they have today? I want my PN obstacle. Now you can start to see different things that would make that more meaningful. Yes. And those questions, uh, how, how, how short they are and, and seemingly simple, if they also apply to any kind of content that a marketer is producing. It also applies to anything a salesperson might say uh, throughout the sales process. So you cover several storytelling excuses that you must encounter frequently, if not every week. And let's talk about some of those excuses because I know there's a few of them probably floating around the listener's mind right now. Let's start with the very first one, which is my topic is boring. I, you know, all you folks that are in the concrete block industry, <laughs> this is for you. It's it's um, it's quite common to think our topic is boring, right? We live it day in and day out, so we don't necessarily see what's interesting. But when you dig into any topic, there are people and projects and details that make it vivid. It's when you feel something is too boring, it's that you're not digging deep enough into it to bring meaning to it. Mm -hmm. So there's an industrial cleaning company tenant. They, um, you know, manufacture industrial cleaning supplies that, that schools use in big buildings and corporations. Not very sexy to market, right? Not, you know, no one is super excited to go run and to be purchasing industrial cleaning supplies. But well, yes, all. but if you're only talking about the product. For sure. For sure. <laughs> critical though for for schools and what tenant did is they launched this program where they wanted to recognize the unsung heroes in schools that use their product so they launched this program called custodians are key and it was a campaign where administrators in schools could nominate their custodians they had to write a little essay about what they did and what the impact was and the first year chris Cantor out of ohio and in an elementary school won he was not only able to do all of his job and, and keep the school clean and safe, but he knew every single person's name in the school. He was holding workshops over lunch to teach them how to build things and use tools. And so now they not only were getting the chance to do these super cool things and build stuff and learn about equipment and tools, but they were learning teamwork and leadership. And what Tenant learned is that they had these amazing stories from the people that were nominated. The winners got money, as did the schools, but tenant won because they now had all of these stories about custodians that were making a huge difference in their communities because the products worked and they could spend their time doing more things than just cleaning. Yeah, you go into great detail about how it actually helped their sales efforts. Exactly. They went and called. So tenant called the administrators in the schools as a thank you for participating. And these are the people that have the budget to buy the supplies, but they couldn't have told you who the provider was. As a result of those conversations, 30% of them converted into sales. Mm. <laughs> love it. I love it. And one of the other excuses is I can't tell a story. I must present data, which we're going to talk about in a minute. The other one, another one that you mentioned is leaders don't need to tell stories. And I literally wrote the word ha off to the side of this when I read it, which means it really made me chuckle. You write, Victor had a habit of sucking all the air out of the room when speaking to employees. As the CEO, he loved talking with him, but he never organized his thoughts. He would ramble for 30 minutes. Employees would drift off and make mental grocery lists. A member of his leadership team suggested he plan a few points and customer stories to share in advance. Victor refused, not wanting to waste time planning. He felt employees would listen to anything he had to say. 
There was there was a book on the show a couple of years ago by Paul Smith about you know leaders this very topic like the yeah. stories leaders should tell. So yeah, the challenge with that because so many people do it is that what happens with the victors of the world is your employees stop listening to you altogether mm-hmm. because you've built you've you've just totally reinforced that you are not bringing any meaningful communication. You're just going to get up there and ramble in search of your story and not make any point for thirty minutes, and that's an incredible waste of time and resources, but also the trust of your employees. Mm -hmm. And so when you do want to be able to mobilize them, it's going to be that much harder for you. Just because you're in front of the room or you have the microphone doesn't mean you have the attention of people. (laughs) Sorry to break it to you CEOs. So a lot of people think of the hero storytelling and they might not be familiar with it. They think, oh, we're making up stories. That's not what we're talking about. Explain why it is a bad idea to make up a story. We are so good at sniffing out what feels manipulative or untrue. You think about those moments where you've heard someone say something and you're like, mm, questionable. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's a, a politician or someone in the community. You've just heard something and you're like, I don't believe you. And in that moment, it's almost like you've made a decision of, okay, this person is in the untrustworthy bucket because this doesn't feel sincere. I feel like they're withholding or intentionally shaping information. And and you don't want to do that. Telling stories that are of true experiences is so much more interesting and convincing and um, much easier for people to connect with. And you can still change details, right? I have to change names and industries and and keep my clients um, anonymized when I'm sharing their stories. And that that's totally fine. You know, sometimes you have to swap a minor detail, but you cannot be making uh, major plot points because people will sniff that out and they will lose trust in you. Yes, yes. So let's talk about story structure. I want to quote from page 120, and you write, There are many different models for storytelling frameworks. You may have heard about the hero's journey, popularized by Joseph Campbell and used to create the original Star Wars films, or Pixar's six-step storytelling model leveraged from Ken Adams, an improv comedian. These story structures are popular for a reason. They do a nice job of building tension to keep the audience's interest, especially when creating novels or screenplays. I frequently hear people say they're challenged trying to use these frameworks to tell stories, especially in real time. They get confused by the steps and struggle to fit their ideas into them. You aren't writing a novel. You're looking to tell a story that lands an idea in a meeting. You need a model that lets you build a story in an easy-to-understand way. Now, that really spoke to me, and when I first learned of Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey framework of, I think it's 17 steps, <laughs> I, was, I was intimidated and uh, overwhelmed and tried to remember all the aspects of a Star Wars film. And so I was kind of overwhelmed and didn't understand it all because in part, I, I'm much like Forrest Gump. I'm not a smart man. Mercifully, however, Karen Eber has just four. <laughs> four steps, <laughs> which, and I thank you for that, which are context, conflict, outcome and takeaway. Can you walk us through those those simple four, which you can almost spring to mind when, the first time you're trying to tell a story? Yeah. And let me just set it just a, a bit of why I have the four to go back to the hero's journey. Um, what I find with things like that when there's so many steps is it's forcing you into one type of story and it's very hard to back your ideas in. It's like you're trying to back your idea into a parking spot that's just too tight and it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. And so for your average person, they're going to just give up and go find another parking spot or they're, they're like, forget it. We're going to go Uber. This isn't worth it. <laughs> and so... What I want to do is not force you into one type of story. One, you know, the thing about the hero's journey is there's a person that's a hero and now you're telling one type of story over and over and over. And that's just not true for what we experience in life. So context, conflict, outcome, takeaway are ingredients. They're not even necessarily the order you have to tell your story in, but they're meant to help you organize what are the major pieces of your story, but they're also meant to make it easier for the audience to hear and digest the story and Mm -hmm. know where you are context is the setting of the story. So what I love to encourage people to do when you're mapping this out is write a sentence for the context of what's the setting, who's involved, and why should the audience care? 
the conflict is the heart of your story. This is the the tension, the peace, the thing that we're exploring, that we're seeking resolution on. It could be between two people. It could be, um, you know, about a person in an event or a, a project. Um, it could be between a person and themselves, their own value. But what is that thing that we're exploring in this? Mm-hmm. The outcome is what action is taken, what happens as a result of the action, and the takeaway is the thing that most people don't do, but it's going to make the difference. This is what is the idea of the story that you want the audience coming away with. And you may never say the takeaway in the story, but the reason to have the takeaway is that when you can say, here's the idea I want the audience to come away with, you can take that back to what you said you wanted the audience to know, think, feel, or do, and see, have you done that? Mm -hmm. If they don't line up, then you can back up and rework the process because you should be able to map those two together and see that this takeaway is indeed supporting what you're trying to achieve with your audience. Yes, and you write that when it comes to stories and developing your stories, editing is as important as creating the story. And there are just some invaluable things in there that we we don't really have time to get into. But one of the questions to ask yourself is, if this was cut out, would anything be lost? (laughs) And I think it's surprising how many times people might go, oh yeah, I guess I (laughs) I don't need that detail. I, I can take that out. And one of the other ones is, does this create confusion? Or does this advance the story? Uh, very, very helpful. There's two other things I want to ask you about before we, we start to wrap up. And I, I mentioned that I just love the part on the science uh, and the, the brain science behind what happens when stories are being told. And the other one that I really enjoyed was the chapter on storytelling with data. And I want to quote from page 177. You write, As the head of data analytics for a construction company, Lucas had years of customer satisfaction data. He kept running into obstacles getting his leadership team to view the data credibly or make data-informed decisions. He was met with comments like, customers are clueless. They don't know what they're talking about. Over six months, customer satisfaction dipped from 70% to 20%. There were too many quality issues that could no longer be overlooked. But instead of pulling up a slide with the data, Lucas started the next biweekly quality meeting differently. Karen, tell us about what he did. He pulled a story that happened with a cruise ship where there was a two-week cruise, and he told the story of a family that had saved up for months to bring 11 family members on this cruise to celebrate their their mother's 80th birthday. Just the logistics alone to be able to get 80, you know, 11 people on a cruise at the same time is really hard. Mm-hmm. So their family was so excited to take this trip, and the kids were just talking incessantly about the pool, right? First day, board the ship, do all the things you need to do in your cabin, put on your swimsuits, and they start to head down to the pool with the, the towels around their neck and their their neon goggles on their head and they get down to the pool and it is just yellow caution tape they couldn't get into it it's all taped off and they're confused like we're at sail we're undersea why is the pool closed and what they learned is that they were on a floating construction site over 30 percent of this ship was under repair Throughout the day, you could just hear the the saws grinding and the hammering echoing off the sides of the ship. You could smell the polyurethane where they were refinishing floors. There was so much debris, the passengers were putting towels over their head when they walked outside because it just was so thick and hard to breathe. And so many of them got sick. They ended up in the infirmary only to be charged for their visit. Everyone was so frustrated. They got the captain in the dining room and they were expressing their anger. Like none of them would have booked this cruise if they had known that the ship was under repair. They were basically paying for the ship to be repaired on their vacation. Mm-hmm. And the captain was empathic at first. You know, he appreciated that it was frustrating to them. But as the conversation got heated, he walked out. And so they reached out to social media. They started lambasting the cruise ship company, you know, talking about their experience and it starts to make the news. It's not good at all. And the um, cruise ship company 
starts to recognize there's there's a problem here. We're going to have to do something. So they sent messages to the passengers and they said, you know, you're right. We're so sorry. Uh, here's here's 50% off on the next cruise that you book. And so Lucas is telling this story to his team and their reaction is like, oh my, you can't do that. Like, oh. book another cruise. You've got to be kidding me. And he just lets them talk and he... Um, does tell them in the story they they do end up offering them the free cruise but when he finishes this story and they're still like can you imagine i would sue that's really awful he leans forward and silently presses a button on his laptop and in the front of the room this video starts playing so their customers have the option to record a video as a part of feedback in their process and it's optional. So you know if a customer takes the step to record a video as a part of their customer's satisfaction, it is either glowing or terrible. And in the front of the room, this man just projects solemnly. And he says, you, you lied to me. You told me that my home was going to be finished and it wasn't. You told me that everything was ready to go and that it was in perfect condition and it wasn't. Like I had family. I had these these circumstances that you were having us live in a construction zone that it wasn't finished and it was dirty. You lied to me. Mm. And one by one, the people in the room just got quiet because they realized like, you cannot identify with how terrible the treatment was from the cruise ship company and disregard your customer data. Mm -hmm. And Lucas said, you know, here's what we've been seeing with our customer data. It's time for a different conversation. And they finally did recognize and had a different type of conversation and started to take that data more seriously. Oh, it very compelling story, and it really got my attention. I, I, I thought that was amazing. What are some of the myths about data that you run into? The biggest is that we think that it's going to speak for itself. People, <laughs> right. uh, people listening probably have been guilty of maybe sharing a piece of data and uh, gesturing to the screen and saying it speaks for itself. But I've done experiments where we'll put up uh, some simple statistic like, um, you know, 23% of performance reviews were submitted on time. And then you ask across the group, well, why do you think that is? And you start to get seven or eight different answers. And, you know, any of them could be right, but it illustrates, well, this seems like a really simple data point. Shouldn't it speak for itself? And it doesn't because we don't know why. And we're each making different interpretations on why. Some thought, well, maybe the system sounds. Some thought, well, I've been doing it all year. There's no point. Or, um, you know, I, I don't believe in it. And so we can't have a conversation about it when we're each having a different interpretation of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what storytelling with data does. It's taking people through the information so you're getting to the starting line of a shared understanding that you can then debate or disagree with. When you say the data speaks for itself and you don't guide people through it, you just end up having these complicated discussions or not moving forward in anything. Right. And you're right. Just because it's easy to share information quickly doesn't mean the audience understands or remembers the data. And I'm guessing that's one of the reasons why you recommend do not default to charts or graphs to tell your right. story. Right. Yep. Oh, so one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was, uh, this has come up, I think, with almost every book about storytelling. Explain why one of the worst things you can do in any kind of storytelling is to start with the following expression. Let me tell you a story. Yeah, not just let me tell you a story, but <clears throat> hi, my name is, I'm here today to uh, we're going to cover today. All of these are just writing permission slips for the people listening to go into lazy mode. Yeah. Like, go ahead. I'm not, or or my other favorite, I don't know if this is any good. Like, you are just sending them on a one-way vacation to Daydreamville. Or, or you talk and, about how if, when people are using jargon in their story, it's another clue to start ignoring them. Yeah. Think of comedians. Have you ever seen a comedian say, let me tell you a joke? <laughs> not, not ones that I continue watching for a few minutes. Fair, so. right? Right. They jump right into the joke. And what do you do? You lean forward because you're hooked. 
start with the story. Don't start with the introduction. Don't start with your name. Don't start with anything other than your story. You can introduce yourself after the story. You can talk about the agenda or objectives after the story. It is going to capture attention. And I know the mental protest is going to be, but I don't, I don't have time to tell a story or I have to do these things because I saw other people do it. I was working with someone who got the call that was, you are going to be presenting to the CEO next week. You have five minutes. This is the head of data analytics, yeah. Fortune 500 company, big CEO. And you have five minutes to talk about your product and the improvements that you think to be made. So naturally, head of data analytics, instinct is, let me find the coolest charts and graphs that I can <laughs> think of. And instead, he took a leap of faith and he told a story about um, part of the product involved in app. So he told this story about um, decorating for the holidays and taking packages down of decorations and finding an ornament from his daughter's first holiday and what that brought up in sentimental reasons. And then he talked about later getting in bed that night and recognizing that maybe he left lights on and he pulled up his app and, and was able to do what was needed. And then he went into the product and the recommendations for updates all in five minutes. His story was maybe 30 seconds. Five people presented that day. You know which one the CEO walked up to? Only one. <laughs> the one and he remembered. What, and you know what he said? He started talking about recognizing that moment and first first holidays with his own child yeah. and so our instinct is well we can't we there, there's no way you have to do you have to do all of these things and it's just not true yeah back to the the chapter on uh storytelling with data you recommend something that is probably counterintuitive for a lot of folks but you say you know use the smallest amount of data in order yeah. to inform your problem statement and, and recommendations. Uh, it, really, yeah. it really works. So the last thing I want to ask you about is you have an entire chapter devoted to where stories go wrong. <laughs> what are some of the biggest culprits? And I'd like you to start with one you've already touched on, which is the uncle at the dinner table. Yeah. So we all have a relative or have experienced a relative that tells their favorite story year after year. Like everyone at the table can mouth along because you've heard it yeah. so many times. You don't even need to be at the table. He's saying it for himself. I can and picture he, that uncle right now. I know exactly right? who you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you're insignificant in this story because he is just in his mode telling the story and it's, you know, the audience is irrelevant. And so we will often have an opportunity to tell a story and we immediately go to, what story am I going to tell? What are my greatest hits? And we start thinking about all of those things when instead you want to go to, who's my audience? What do I want them to know, think, feel, or do? Because then you can choose an idea that's going to help you do that. Mm -hmm. When you start with the stories that you love and you don't take the time to really relate it to the audience and make it meaningful for them, you are no different than that uncle at the holiday table. Yes, and... Karen, I'm only laughing because my poor adult children have suffered because of my approach to the <laughs> the stories I tell it at the dinner table. Those, those poor kids. They turned out great, but I, you know, boy, I, now that I now that I think about it, no wonder they never call me or, or respond to my text <laughs> messages. But not about me. So listen, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? That anyone can learn to tell great stories. And there actually is no such thing as the perfect story. You find your stories and you make them perfect. Yes, absolutely. Well said. What is one thing a listener can do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book just to get them, as I like to say, thinking in the right direction? I'm going to give you two. Oh, First is recognize. Please stop over-delivering. Yeah, I know. Well, recognize no one's going to say to you, will you please tell me a story? <laughs> so the first is look for opportunities to tell them. Like just yes. seek them out. Don't wait for an invitation because no one is going to send that invitation. And then the second is when you find that opportunity, start with your audience. Try oh. to make it as meaningful as possible for them. Yes, and I should add for the listener's benefit, there's an entire chapter about all the toolkits and how you can go about collecting all these ideas. You will the, the problem you'll have is that you'll have too many stories to be thinking about, but that 
that's better than thinking I don't I don't have any stories I can tell. So looking back, Karen, what books have most inspired your work and career? A lot of times it's not your nonfiction business book. It's it's a different book. Oh, absolutely. It could be any book. Yeah. Two that I think of are, uh, one was Creativity Inc. from Ed Catmull from Pixar. Mm-hmm. I found it very interesting to hear about the early days of Pixar. But the other is Brian Grazier wrote A Curious Mind and how he's produced all of these amazing films with Ron Howard, um, all from being curious and asking questions and how he let his curiosity lead him into new opportunities. Oh, I haven't read either of those, but I bet they're just great reads. Yeah, folks, listen, if you're only reading nonfiction marketing books, that's troubling. I mean, I do it, but I also read other stuff too. Are there any recent or upcoming books you recommend or are looking forward to reading, perhaps now that you have time to (laughs) read more books? (laughs) There is a book that I'm intrigued by. It's called The Canary Code by Ludmilla Praslova. She is a um, professor. And the book is about how to to create these inclusive environments for different cognitive, emotional, and neurobiological circumstances. And so instead of centering on a, a um, in-person workplace where everybody does work the same way, it teaches you the neuro. neuro- the nuances of the different um, neurodiversity, and I don't know. I, I am just fascinated to read it, and always find things that she posts very thought provoking. Oh wow, that sounds like I would enjoy that too. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, dot com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned, your website, your LinkedIn profile, and now, dear listener, please reach out to Karen, congratulate her on this excellent book, thank her for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast tolerating a lot of really stupid jokes. Uh, If nothing else, share this interview on LinkedIn and tag us so we can thank you. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote, page 249. You can learn to be a great storyteller. Follow the steps of the model and the five factory settings to put the pieces together for each audience. The most valuable thing people can do is give us their attention. Great stories respect that attention by thoughtfully building an idea that informs, influences, or inspires the audience. You don't have to wait for the perfect idea, situation, or invitation to tell stories. The only requirement is deciding to try. Stories create connections, open doors, and leave people changed. Someone out there needs to hear your stories. The only thing missing is that you haven't told them yet. Don't wait for the perfect story. Take your stories and make them perfect. The book is The Perfect Story, How to Tell Stories That Inform, Influence, and Inspire. The author is Karen Eber. Karen, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you for having me. What a joy. (laughs) 